Welcome to episode 65 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. In this episode, we speak with retired agent Bob Hamer, who served in the FBI for 26 years. While in the Bureau, Hamer, a Marine Corps veteran, worked organized crime, gangs, terrorism, and child exploitation. Most of his career was spent undercover in assignments lasting anywhere from several days to more than three years. Bob successfully posed as a drug dealer, a contract killer, an international weapons dealer, a white collar crime criminal, and a pedophile. In this episode of FBI Retired Case File Review, he is interviewed about infiltrating the security-obsessed North American Man-Boy Love Association, NAMBLA. Disguised as an aging pedophile, he was able to crack the group's intensive international network and to identify and gather evidence on sex tourists traveling overseas to sexually exploit children. Bob Hamer received numerous awards throughout his career, including the coveted FBI Director's Award for Distinguished Service and five United States Attorney Awards for Distinguished Service. Bob has written and consulted for television and is the author of three award-winning books and three novellas. His nonfiction book, The Last Undercover, details his FBI undercover career with special emphasis on his courageous assignment to penetrate NAMBLA. You are going to be absolutely floored when you hear this interview. I know I was. It's going to make you angry and it's going to be disturbing, but I hope you listen to it. Bob really gives you a clear understanding of what we are up against when it comes to protecting our children from pedophiles. I want to give producer credit to Rishi, I hope I pronounce your last name right, Nakra, who wrote me and asked me to interview Bob. Great suggestion, Rishi. Before we get to that interview, I have two things. And the first thing I have to say is I missed you last week. Thank you to those of you who revisited old episodes or took the time to go back and listen to episodes that you had missed. As you recall, I was down in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, sneaking around to throw my daughter a surprise bridal shower. She was down there with her girlfriends for the bachelorette party, and she had no idea that the quote-unquote adults were sneaking down to surprise them. The surprise bridal shower turned out fabulous. I also want to thank newsletter subscribers for helping me select the new updated revised cover for my FBI crime thriller, Pay to Play. You should see Pay to Play, the same book with a new look on Amazon, hopefully sometime next week. Of course, I had to change out all my social media banners, but it will be worth it because the new book cover is grittier and so cool. It tells you right away that this book 
is about corruption and greed. Thanks again. If you want to start receiving my newsletter, which is all about the FBI and books, TV and movies, all you need to do is visit my website and sign up when you see the pop up. In addition to the monthly newsletter, you'll get a link to the FBI reading resource, which features books about the FBI written by the very FBI agents appearing on this podcast. Also, once a month, I make it easy for you to review episode show notes, photos, and crime fiction recommendations, and I keep you up to date on your FBI entertainment news. So thank you again for buying and reviewing Pay to Play. My time and the expense to produce and host FBI Retired Case File Review is supported by you. When you pick up a copy of Pay to Play for yourself or as a gift for someone you know loves crime fiction, you're helping to defray the cost for me to continue producing ad-free content on a weekly basis. Plus, Pay to Play is a good read. So keep the book reviews, tweets, posts, and emails coming. I love hearing from you. So thank you. And here's the show. I want to introduce my guest, Bob Hamer. Hi, Bob. Hey, Jerry. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you. I have been doing a number of episodes about child sexual abuse. Uh, About a month ago, I interviewed a case agent on the polyclass case, and then right after that, I spoke with Jim Clemente, who is a former FBI profiler and an expert on you know child sexual abuse. So now we're here talking with you about this unbelievable undercover assignment. Can you tell us a little bit more about that assignment and why you accepted it? Because I just would imagine it was probably one of the most difficult assignments that uh, you undertook. Yeah, that's interesting. It it really was one of my most difficult assignments. I was 26 years in the FBI and literally spent many of those years undercover. I was the undercover agent in uh, 20 administratively approved programs. Some of them lasted a day or two, but uh, several of them lasted more than three years. But I will say that my infiltration of NAMBLA, which is the North American Man-Boy Love Association, was my most difficult case from a I guess from an emotional standpoint, but also just from uh, portraying a pedophile. These were NAMBLA is a group of men that are sexually attracted to boys, and I had to be one of them. So that's what made this unusual for me. Typically, like most undercover agents, I, I've portrayed the role of the contract killer. I've been the dope dealer. I've been the international arms dealer. And when you're dealing with the targets... They don't really care whether you like football or ballet. They don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat. As long as they think you can get the job done, as long as you've got the money to to pay for the drugs or pay for the guns, they really don't care too much about anything other than seeing the green. But in this particular case, I had to be one of them and I had to think like one of them. And that that made this a, a most unusual case for me. I can imagine so. Before we actually get into the case, and you can tell us what predicated everything, could you give us a little bit of information about you, why you joined the FBI, and when you joined the FBI? Yeah, I I grew up in the Perry Mason generation, and I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I 
enlisted in the Marine Corps in 1970. The Marines were essentially pulling out of Vietnam, and the recruiter told me, look, uh, we have an officer program. Would you be interested in, in being an officer? So I went through the PLC program. I was commissioned after I graduated from college in 1972, and I was told at that time that the Marine Corps needed 110 lawyers, and would I be interested in going to law school? And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, Perry Mason, I'll, I'll go to law school. So I became a judge advocate in the Marine Corps. Like all Marines, I was a rifleman first. I'd been to OCS. I'd been through the basic school. But I spent four years, uh, besides school, three of those years, as a judge advocate. I was in the courtroom. I had 150 trials, everything from unauthorized absence to murder. And I always say that the Marine Corps did two things for me. They got my wisdom teeth pulled, and they taught me how much I hated being a lawyer. I mean, <laughs> no case was a whodunit. It was always a procedural case. And I had had this warrior ethos. The, the Marine Corps did instill that in me. But I just, I hated the courtroom. It, it was just boring to me. And the FBI turned out to be a perfect fit. So in 1979... I joined the FBI and, and really never looked back. I I say that I had bad days, but there was never a day during those 26 years where I said, oh, my gosh, why did I join the FBI? I, I should have stayed a lawyer. I should have repaired typewriters like my grandmother wanted me to do. Why did you get into undercover? I think because of the boredom of the courtroom that I saw in the Marine Corps, I was looking for something really exciting, and maybe I watched too much television and I just thought, man, it would be fun to to go undercover. And the very first undercover case I had, things have changed now in terms of procedurally, but I'd only been in the FBI for six months when I had my first undercover case. And it was a case that I was co-case agent on, and, and there were some things that went right and some things that went wrong, and all of a sudden we needed an undercover agent. And the informant said, well, he looked at me and said, you know, I can introduce you. So that's how I got introduced to uh, an art theft undercover operation that lasted nine months. And from my first undercover meeting that I had, I walked into that meeting to meet the bad guy. My knees were literally shaking, not not from fear, but from adrenaline. I mean, it was just the adrenaline was just pulsating through my body. And I met the guy. We had a almost an innocuous first meeting. But I walked away, he believed me that I was who I said I was, and I came away with this adrenaline high, and I thought, and I learned right there, man, that's what I want. I, the rest of my career, I, I was sort of chasing that adrenaline dragon. You know, they, they talk about heroin addicts that, that chase the dragon. Well, I was tra- chasing the adrenaline dragon for the rest of my career. I, I always sought out the undercover assignments because of just the excitement that for me, there was nothing nothing more exciting than just screwing with somebody and <laughs> and going face to face with a bad guy and having him believe that I that I was one of them. I I can understand that a little. And you know, I worked mostly, you know, greed and corruption and fraud cases, but it was this it, somewhat of the same thing because the subjects always thought they were smarter than everybody else. You know, they were con men. And I love going toe-to-toe with them. So I get that a little bit. I get that yeah. a little bit. All right, so your initial uh, undercover assignment, you know, you just kind of fell into. But I take it by the time you started this uh, NAMBLA, 
uh, undercover, there were more restrictions and more training and more backstopping. Certainly, uh, like I said, you know, what initially it was just kind of the supervisor walks into the squad bay and says, who wants to be, you know, this guy this week? And someone would raise their hand and would be the undercover agent. Uh, it was probably in the, the early to mid-80s when they started the whole undercover certification program where you had to, you had to be selected, you had to pass certain uh, psychological exams, you had to go through an in-service, and then you were certified to work undercover. And I was, I was certified to work undercover, so that's how I began to... I, I was put on a list, and uh, people would advertise they were looking for something, or, or on my squad particularly, they knew I did the undercover work, so guys would would come to me because it was easier when you were working organized crime to be proactive rather than reactive and just we were proactive and would somehow get me into a group and we were successful. Excellent. All right. So could you tell us a little bit more about the predication for this case? And if you could tell uh, us a little bit about your role as the undercover agent and, you know, how the case agent, how you guys work together on this. Yeah, this case... The actual NAMBLA investigation began well before NAMBLA. Uh, the Knoxville, Tennessee field office had arrested a guy uh, for child pornography. And when they searched his computer, they found a lot of pictures taken of kids in Thailand that that this man had taken and had them on his computer. He was arrested during the interview he confessed that he had been that he'd gone over to Thailand as a result of contact with a travel agent in Los Angeles, California, and that this guy in California set up these overseas uh, travel for uh, pedophiles. So Knoxville uh, got a hold of Los Angeles, and there was a meeting between LA agents and the Knoxville agent and the people at headquarters, and they decided that we needed to target this guy that was in Los Angeles. At that time, I was actually on the the Joint Terrorism Task Force, but had been approached by the case agent of this particular case. that They identified the travel agent in Los Angeles, and they needed somebody that was willing to go undercover as, uh, as a pedophile. So that's that's how I got involved. So we began targeting the travel agent. Now what I what I always found fascinating about undercover work is you had to be smart enough to fool the people for them to believe you who were, you said you were. So there have been times I, I had to be kind of a semi expert in in Western art, uh, in finance, in drugs and weapons you know you had to learn enough that that you could fool them for them to believe that you who you said you were uh this was a whole new thing for me because i had to figure out okay what's the mindset of these pedophiles in the old days i used to go to the library and just get books and spend hours reading up on subjects now we've got the internet so when i first got this assignment i sat down at the computer and started researching everything i could about boy lovers that's what they refer to themselves as bls or boy lovers 
I was even able to go into a couple of predicated chat rooms that the FBI had identified and was posing as 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 Bobby 13. And I was amazed at the, the amount of men that jumped on me as soon as I put up my moniker of Bobby 13. They thought I was a 13-year-old boy, and I had... I had guys on me within within minutes. I had two or three people that were contacting me and wanted to chat with me. So I was trying to get a to get this mindset to think like these people that uh, so that I could fool uh, essentially a professional pedophile. And during that research, I I had heard about Nambla in the past, but didn't pay much attention because I didn't work sex crimes. Came across Nambla. To actually join the organization, you send in your $35, and that was it. So I figured it would make sense that if these were pedophiles that were traveling overseas, that they were going to to probably be NAMBLA members. So I figured, one, it would add credibility to my backstopping that I was a NAMBLA member, and two, it would allow me to communicate with, with other people and develop more of that uh, boy lover mindset. So I just I we contacted the assistant United States attorney and said, "Hey, is it okay if I join this organization?" and she said, "Sure, go ahead." So sent in my 35 bucks and next thing I know, I get a a letter back from Nambla, which in the age of computers, I thought it was real interesting. It was a uh, a printed letter and then my name Robert was handwritten. So it was dear in in the type and then handwritten Robert. So you you would have thought that one, it either gave the impression this was a huge organization, or two, they could have at least used the uh, template and right. typed in Robert. So I was I, I turned out to be a member of Nambla. Now I'm I am a Nambla member, but I'm going back and we're continuing to work the the travel agent case. But you know what? Could you tell us a little bit more because there are going to be people who have no idea what this NAMBLA is and this man-boy thing is and what their purpose is as an organization. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, Yeah. NAMBLA, it stands for the North American Man-Boy Love Association. It kind of evolved out of the sexual revolution in the 70s. It began in Boston, Massachusetts, where uh, some men were arrested because they were bringing boys into the house and showing them pornography and then engaging the boys in sex. I mean, that... Uh, that sounds like child sexual abuse to me. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, that's exactly what it was. And and these were men that were targeting boys and, and bringing them in. They were grooming them and then having sex with them. Several of these men were arrested. In Boston, It uh, it became a huge media event and there were enough people in that Boston area that believed that there really wasn't anything wrong with this as long as it was consensual sex. So in 1978, they formed this group and they formed a, a group called NAMBLA. And it, would, it began there in in Boston and soon it kind of spread throughout the United States. This was before the Internet so that it was more of a, you know, you send in your money to join the organization, and then they would get together, and they had chapters throughout the the country. There's a long history behind NAMBLA, and we can get into that if you want. But essentially, these men, it was an opportunity for like-minded men to get together and 
talk about their love for little boys. And this was overt? I mean, they their identity was known to people? It was overt in that anyone could attend the meetings. They they used to march in the gay pride parades. They considered themselves a part of the of the gay movement. So I mean there are there are photographs that you can find online of of men uh carrying the Nambla banner walking in these parades and it was it was uh it was welcomed within the the gay community. At the that time thing- I can't I can't imagine that it's welcomed now more enlightened people that in the gay community that this would be something that they would be as equally against as, you know, heterosexuals. Yeah, they were the organization was kicked out of of the gay community of the well, I can was, imagine. Yeah. Yeah, Namble was removed. Uh, essentially their mission was to abolish age of consent laws. I mean, on paper that's what they're saying that they want to abolish the age of consent laws. Now, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with it, but in case someone isn't, each state, each country actually has has established an age of consent. And that means that once a person reaches that age, they can consent to having sex. Before that age, they are deemed not to be mature enough or psychologically or emotionally mature to engage in such activities. So if you have sex with a person below that age, it's called statutory rape. It's, it's deemed a crime whether the person consents or not. So what NAMBLA was trying to do was abolish the age of consent laws. They believed that if a 50-year-old man wants to have sex with a 12-year-old boy and the boy consents, then as long as the boy enters into it consensually, it should be legal. Now, if if the 50-year-old man is forcing himself on the child, then that is rape. But as long as the child consents, uh, that's that should be okay. So that was essentially what they were trying to do, sort of getting back to this whole case in Boston. The boys that were being lured into this house and viewing the pornography, uh, they consented, but these men were still charged with statutory rape. So that was that was what Namble was designed to do, was to change the law. Now, did they were there efforts to do that? Not that I saw. I was in the organization for three years, and we can talk about that a little bit later, but never in my three years in NAMBLA was there ever an effort to write your congressman, write your senator, uh, write letters to the editor to abolish the age of consent laws. What I saw in my three years, the organization was there for like-minded men to get together to talk about where to go to have sex with boys and how to seduce boys. I'm glad you mentioned that word seduce because when we talk about, you know, the boys consenting, you know, that's the whole thing that, uh, you know, we've learned about grooming and manipulating, you know, the children in order to, you know, get them to, to do what they want them to do. All right. So go back to this case. So, so you're, you've got this so, travel so we- agent. Yeah, so we're we're looking at the travel agent. It's one of these things, and Jerry, I know you've been there in 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 so many of the cases that you put together. I go, I meet with the travel agent. He explains to me 
what they do, uh, how much it's going to cost. He explains that when I get over to Thailand, that he will introduce me to another man. That man's name is Bob. If I tell Bob what I want, the age that I want, and the acts that I want to perform, he will take me to these boy bars that they have in Thailand, and I can I can get whatever I want. Now, as he's explaining all this to me, he's he's telling me who's going to go on the trip. Not everyone on the trip is going to be a boy lover. Some are just men that that want older boys or or men that are looking just to hang out in gay bars in Thailand. But he's explaining all this to me, and I'm figuring we've got it. We've got all the elements that we need for this offense because, one, he's saying we're going to go overseas. Uh, Two, he's going to say he's going to introduce me to someone. Three, that that person is going to give me what I desire in terms of my, my sexual desires. I thought we had the case. We go back to the to the AUSA and she goes, Well, no, he didn't really he didn't really fulfill all the elements of the offense because essentially he left it up to me, he left it up to the traveler to take the initiative to have to have sex. It wasn't like he was putting together uh this little boy with this older man. So our AUSA said we didn't have a violation. Uh, in essence, the case fell apart. Nothing, nothing happened with that case, and they kind of let the whole thing slide. That they, they did exec- execute search warrants. They found nothing to actually f- um, find a criminal violation of the traveling in interstate commerce to have sex with an underage person, which is what the violation was. It was the travel it was a the travel element that allowed the federal government to get involved. Did the travel agent have uh child sexual images on his computer? Was he no someone that so he did not participate in the lifestyle. He just no, he, facilitated he, it. Yeah, when I walked into this place, uh it was a, a one-bedroom apartment in in Hollywood. The room was filled, the walls up to the top of the walls with porn. Uh, this guy turned out to be a, a pornographic producer, an actor who had been in over 500 pornographic films and everything. But and he admitted to me that he was gay, but that he wasn't into children. So he wasn't a boy lover, but he he was. Uh, a porn star. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't familiar with his work, so I couldn't talk about it. <laughs> I I had to go back and and check my uh, check my movies, and I found out that it it wasn't next to my Braveheart collection. <laughs> not not one of the things that you you normally would watch. It turned out that that whole case just fell by the wayside, and in one of the few times in my career. We were unsuccessful in in getting an arrest and conviction on one of the undercover operations. Now, in the meantime, I start getting emails from NAMBLA thanking me for joining the organization. Uh, I have to laugh in the letter they initially sent to me that I had taken a courageous step in in joining this organization. And I, I quite frankly, I tried to get that letter put into my case file because it said I <laughs> and I highlighted courageous step and everything, and I've. But I had a secretary that realized I was 
usually trying to screw with management, and she didn't allow it to go into my personnel file. <laughs> but uh, uh, so I started getting letters from NAMBLA, and they were saying, uh, "Thank you for your brave, uh, your, your courage in joining the organization. We have numerous members that are in prison. We have a pen pal program, and we have a Christmas card program." And we were wondering if you would like to participate by sending Christmas cards to our incarcerated members. So, again, I contacted the assistant United States attorney, and I said, look, you know, do you want to go ahead and pursue this? And she said, sure. So I wrote a kind of a generic letter. I, I, I told NAMBLA, interestingly enough, you had to do it, I think, in in numbers of three or five in terms of how many people you wanted to correspond with. So I said I would do 15. So they sent me a list of 15 names of incarcerated NAMBLA members, and I uh, got Christmas cards and sent a generic letter essentially that said, uh, I'm sorry that you got in, that, that you were incarcerated for doing something that we all think should be legal. Uh, I was going to go overseas, but I wasn't able to because of a heart condition. Just wondered if you traveled and if do you know of any really great places where where I could go uh to have safe sex with children and I started getting back the the correspondence back uh some of it was extremely graphic where these guys described everything that they had done to kids and what they wanted to do they started becoming pen pals my reputation within Nambla was that I was that I was corresponding with these men, so they were sending me more names, and the men were saying, oh, you should contact so-and-so because he's in prison too. And what I found was these guys, they really wanted to communicate. They wanted to to talk with somebody that, that wasn't condemning of what they had done. By the time the case was over, and we'll, we'll get into the prosecutions, but I had corresponded with 165 NAMBLA members, uh, some of them would write me back and say, "Oh, you know, thank you for the Christmas card or the letter, but I'm I'm now a born again Christian and I don't want to do this." Some of them said, "I'm I'm going through counseling. I'm trying not to do this. Please don't contact me." Others just said, "Thank you for your letter," but some they got extremely graphic in in what they had done with little boys and what they were doing. Those that were the more graphic, I continued to correspond with. Let me ask you a question, because you're corresponding with people that are incarcerated. Isn't there, and they're incarcerated for sex crimes, isn't there anybody at these institutions looking at their mail, checking to see if they are continuing, uh, you know, to be involved in this illegal activity? You know, that's interesting, because no, they weren't. I, I think that for the most part... Most of the prisons, they would they would check the letters. They weren't checking the incoming. Uh, I, I don't know about the outgoing. They were just checking to make sure you weren't sending contraband in there. We never received any feedback from anyone in the prisons uh, saying, "Oh, I got caught for sending this very graphic story to you about about what I was doing." So I I don't know that that there really was any any filter on that i i think maybe they they might read through some of the letters it wasn't like that 
that they were catching what was said. I, I've written a book. It's called The Last Undercover, and I have some excerpts from the letters that they were sent, and the reader will see how graphic some of this was. I, I cleaned it up for the for the sake of the, the book, but these guys would go into detail about what they'd done to little boys, what they wanted to do to little boys when they got out. And we did use, eventually, when the case broke, uh, almost three years later, we used some of these letters. Many states have a uh, a civil commitment for those that have served their time and sex crimes. If they haven't, if they aren't deemed to be rehabilitated, they can use a civil commitment and keep that person in beyond the period of incarceration. So there were a couple guys that we used the letters that they wrote me to keep them in beyond the the period of incarceration. Florida, particularly, where there were a couple people we we worked down there, they had a uh, a great civil commitment uh, system down there to keep the sex offenders in even after they'd done their criminal time. So when you continued your participation with NAMBLA, you know, writing these letters, the purpose of that part of the investigation, where did you think you were going to take that? Well, we were we were hoping that that somebody would say, okay, yeah, contact so and so. You know, he he puts together trips where you can have sex overseas, or you know, even within the United States, we can do this. We weren't really finding that. So what happened was, I found out that NAMBLA was having one of their national conferences up in San Francisco. I was stationed in Los Angeles at the time. So I just contacted NAMBLA and said, hey, I, I see in your magazine, they did have a magazine called the NAMBLA Bulletin, and I would I would get that every month. And I, I said, I see in the NAMBLA Bulletin that you're going to have a meeting up in San Francisco. I live in L.A. I'd like to attend. <laughs> and essentially, I got back the word that, no, you have to be a member for three years and sponsored by another NAMBLA member before we will invite you to one of these conferences. What had happened was in the early 90s, they had very open meetings. The, they were having them at public libraries, anywhere in public. Anyone could attend. They had so much trouble with the media press, they had trouble with some infiltration by law enforcement that they closed the meetings. Um, the NAMBLA members were more fearful of exposure than they were of actual incarceration because even within the gay community they weren't they weren't well received and they didn't want it out you know as as professionals as school teachers as uh, professional people as just ordinary citizens they didn't want it out they didn't want to be outed as NAMBLA members i can imagine not you know um basically they're sex offenders they're the people you know that uh you know you're you're trying to keep your kids away from and most sex offenders the reason they get away with it is because people don't know that they exactly. have these thoughts that they have these desires and so you know as a NAMBLA member you're wearing it like a badge of honor yeah exactly and and what happened was so i get back the communication that no you haven't been a member long enough to do it and and i'm working other cases at the time i i was on the joint terrorism task force we were we were extremely busy with things that were going on in the southern california area with that but i was sort of doing this as a 
I guess you could say as a sidebar, one, because I was disgusted by this organization, and two, it was just, I kind of enjoyed screwing with them. I actually wrote articles for their magazine. I I wrote one article called Castration, Myth, or Madness, and it was just, I, I just... I just enjoyed screwing with these guys and sending them my articles. So I guess I'd been a member about a year and a half. It was with, within six months that they said, no, you can't come to our San Francisco meeting. So the next meeting was in New York City, and I received an invitation to come to the New York City meeting. And I, the letter was from the essentially the head of NAMBLA. They didn't really have a president, but the guy that was sort of the top organizer in the group. And I had passed because I had I'd been participating in the the pen pal program. I'd written articles for the magazine. So they invited me to come to the New York meeting. And that was going to be my first face to face encounter with with these with the membership. Well that had to be you're talking about an adrenaline rush, you know, again, knowing that you're going to be going into the situation and that you've got to be able to convince them that your mind is as warped and, uh, with, you know, disgusting and, and perverted thoughts as theirs. How did you do that? Well, you know, and, and that's an excellent point that you make because the one thing you have to remember as an undercover agent is if this thing goes to trial, you can't be as disgusting as the bad guys in anything you do. I mean, if if you if you're in a drug deal, you can't be dropping the f bomb every other word. I used to always consider that my grandmother was going to be on the jury. So I mean, I tried to. I, I probably talked worse when I wasn't being wired than when I was wired. I mean, sure, there are times that certain language is, is going to be accepted by the jury because you have to be part of that group but you I've I was always careful in my undercover assignments that I wasn't going to to just discuss the jury because you know I was swearing more than the bad guys or suggesting to the bad guys what would be a appropriate conduct I wanted them to to suggest to me what was appropriate so in this Nambla thing yeah I it, I I had to be back there um, and I was going to be going face to face, but I couldn't come across to the jury that I was di- as disgusting as these men. So I received the invitation. Uh, the bureau was a little reluctant to let me go, and they, it was twofold. One, NAMBLA is a First Amendment pr- protected organization. They do have a right to say that consent laws should be abolished. Now, they don't have a right to participate in sex with little boys but they have a right to say that that the uh, that uh, the change of consent laws should be abolished so in that sense they were a protected first amendment organization and the bureau wasn't going to allow us to go when when we first contacted about going because we had to start a new undercover program and had to get this thing up and going and, and permission for me to go we were actually able to convince them there were a couple people in California that were in the NAMBLA organization that weren't properly registered as registered sex offenders at their proper address. So as part of our reason for going back was to identify where these sex offenders actually lived, 
We also said that it would be an opportunity to see who was at the meeting and whether they were, if there were any sexual fugitives that were there. So we put out word to the, the different divisions if they had known boy lovers that were fugitives to send us names and photographs and I would be looking for the members. We made it clear to the Bureau, and I think one of the AUSAs had a had the great uh, analogy that NAMBLA is barnyard defecation. We weren't going after the pile of poop. We were going after the flies that were hanging around the pile of poop. So, and That's I cleaned a great up the analogy. Yeah, I, I, like, I, I like cleaned up analogy. the language for your radio show. But, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I think that was it. So we said we weren't going back to disrupt NAMBLA. We were going back to, to go after the flies. And headquarters bought it with those very narrow restrictions. I went back to New York City, and that weekend, it was Veterans Day weekend, and that was my first encounter with the NAMBLA members, and it was uh, it was quite a weekend. We were meeting at the Times at the Grand Central Station at the food concourse down below. I've been there many times. Uh, yes, it was it it was so interesting. I, when I first started working the travel agent case, I just I thought ah, I kind of smell like a cop. I look like a cop. I gotta I gotta just be something different. So it was almost as if God gave me the word and said, "Be handicapped." So I I bought an arm crutch, and in that that whole case with the uh, the travel agent, I used an arm crutch, and I had a, a an arthritic condition. I actually would tell them that I had osteogenetic osteomyelitis that resulted in a spondylolisthesis, which I'm sure whoever was transcribing the tapes it drove them crazy trying to figure out how to spell all that. But I went to Grand Central Station, went down there to the, the concourse. I wasn't quite sure who I was going to see or how I was going to be able to identify the group. And I, lo and behold, I look over toward the food court and it was like, Central Casting, send me some perverts. I mean, it looked like who you would think would be a, a child molester for right. some of the members. Others look very normal, and I say that on a scale of one to ten, I'm about a two and a half with makeup, but I really don't look like a, a child molester. And some of these guys did. They they looked, I mean, fat, sloppy, horned-rimmed glasses, uh, trench coat type of person. Others were, they they looked very normal, and you wouldn't have suspected that they were predators. We get in. How I, many I inter- people? Well, there were about 25 at this first meeting. Now, the, the group at one time was well over a 1,000. There was a famous case in Boston called the Jeffrey Curley case. There was a civil wrongful death action against an AMBLA member. And because they were trying to go after the membership in this civil case, uh, a lot of people dropped off the rolls. And remember, this was only people that, that were invited to this New York meeting were only those that were that were already screened. So mm-hmm. not everybody was invited, and because it was in New York, people from the from throughout the country may not have gone to the meetings. But there were about twenty five at that first night. There were 
I guess there were 35 the second day when we when we started the meetings. But uh, I started kind of introduced myself around and started uh, conversing with the people. They were extremely friendly. They were nice. They were they were leering at little boys that were racing to get to the train with their mom and talking about previous meetings and all that. And then Peter Melzer, who was the the head of the organization that was communicating with me, Peter Herman was his Nambla name. Um, I I introduced myself to him and we we had a, a brief little discussion. And then he said, "Okay, now we're going to take." A tour of Times Square. We we leave Grand Central Station. Did we go to Times Square? And you could almost sense the excitement in these men as we got closer to the Toys R Us. It was it was sort of like when you go to that big college football game and you you're in the parking lot and you're starting to head toward the the admission gate. So now we're walking into the Toys R Us and there's this excitement. Now I've never been to the Toys R Us at Times Square, and we walk in, and these men, they literally run to the railing to overlook the 60-foot indoor Ferris wheel inside the Toys R Us. It's a Friday night. The parents have brought their kids there. The kids are on the Ferris wheel, and these men are standing there eyeballing these little boys that are in the uh, in the, the gondola seats, you know, going around. And and saying stuff. Oh, look at that! Look at that kid in the blue shirt, or look at that guy with the with the football jersey. This is what I'd like to do to him. And they were telling sexually what they wanted to do to these kids. Had had I not been undercover, and I had I walked by and I heard these guys, I probably I would have just thrown them over the railing. I mean, I was so disgusted by oh the way God. these men were talking. And and here you had parents that were taking their kids to just to have a fun evening, a, a chance to to just get out and look at the toys and ride on the Ferris wheel. And they just thought this was a great opportunity for their kids. And they were providing this feast for these pedophiles that were just drooling over the railing, uh, hanging over the railing and drooling as they watched these little boys go around. That's when the moment struck me that... I've got to do this case. I mean, I've got to take these guys down. I, I'm sitting here just shaking my head and my mouth is open. This is a group activity. You know, you're, you might be at the playground and there's some weird, creepy guy sitting on the bench and you're, you're hoping that he's not there, you know, drooling at your child. But here you have a group of men who are in an activity. <laughs> to go to a toy store, not to look at the toys, but to look at the kids. It exactly. Is, oh, my God. And it's a, it's a protected First Amendment activity. <laughs> I mean, that, that society says, okay, we, essentially we have to allow you to do this. So that was the very first night. Of, that was my experience. Interestingly... They wouldn't tell us ahead of time, NAMBLA wouldn't tell us ahead of time where the meetings were going to take place the next day. This was a weekend meeting, so we had meetings Saturday and Sunday. They, did, they, won't, they wouldn't tell us ahead of time because they were so fearful of law enforcement and they were afraid that we were going to, the, the, the cops were going to 
set up and photograph and videotape and then come in and, and bust the meetings. It wasn't until that night that we were told where the meetings were going to take place. What about that? Were, were you under surveillance? Did you have backup? No. Okay, it was just, you just went. Yeah, I, I just I just went. Yeah, I guess there wasn't any chance of danger. You know, no one was going to, you know, attack you. They weren't interested in you. No, uh-uh. They, they, they weren't. And, I mean, look, I've been shot at. I've shot people. I've had a contract put out on my life. I've, I've been in much more dangerous situations. I wasn't fearful of my personal danger. I think I was... I, I was more fearful of what I might do to these guys. Uh, the, the idea that I, I would just as soon go into this meeting with a grenade and blow us all up. I, I would have done more for society had I done that than continue with the, the meeting. So now that the next day we, we, we go into this room. It, it's an office building there in, in New York City, downtown New York City. We go up to this room. We're, we're sitting around, and Peter Melzer asks a guy named Rock Thatcher. Now, Rock Thatcher wasn't his real name. That was his Nambla name, as I, as I found that a lot of these guys didn't use their real names even among themselves. We go there, and Peter Melzer says, now we're going to have the introductions. Uh, if you If you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, you can. If you don't want to say anything, you can. If you don't want to introduce yourself, if you don't want to use your real name, it's okay. And but Rock Thatcher is going to give a safety lecture, and I'm just quite a sitting there, fat, dumb, and happy. And I figure a safety lecture is going to be, you know, use a condom or uh, where to safely go to find uh, little boys to have sex with, or where you can buy child porn. And he starts talking about we have to be very careful at these meetings. Um, we don't believe we have been infiltrated. But we never know from year to year what's happened to anybody. Uh, Peter has carefully screened everyone that's been invited here. But please do not discuss where to go to find little boys. Don't discuss anything illegal. That's not why we're here. And Jerry, I swear this is true. He points right toward me, right to my seat where I'm sitting. And he said, we've had a cop. We had a law enforcement person in here years ago, and he sat right there, and he has since filed an affidavit against us. And I wow. was sitting in the cop seat. <laughs> Holy crap. I mean, you couldn't write this in a, in a TV show or in a movie where the undercover agent is actually sitting there, and they point right to me. So the, the rest of the, the weekend is, is somewhat uneventful. I but what's the purpose? If, if the purpose is not to exchange child pornography or child images or to talk about it, what's the purpose of the meeting? Just to network? To network. And, and see, that, and that was it. The, during the meetings, the discussions, for the most part, were very boring. Now, I, 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 I'll kind of jump ahead because I know we're running out of time, but I went to the Miami meeting then the next year. That, but the the meetings were... The actual discussions during the meetings were pretty boring. It was what happened in between meetings during the break times where people would say, okay, well, yeah, this is where I want to go have sex. This is how you can seduce boys. But the actual meetings themselves, not too much took place 
there was that one moment, kind of that one undercover moment where I was talking to a school teacher out of New Jersey that had used to take pictures of little boys and put them on the Internet and all this. And some guy interrupted us as we were talking. And I was a little annoyed that this guy interrupted us. And this younger guy said to the school teacher, he said, well, I wasn't going to come. Uh, because, you know, I just, I know we're having all that trouble up in Boston with that Jeffrey Curley civil lawsuit. And this guy, the school teacher says, well, I wouldn't come here either, but I know that Peter carefully screens anyone and you'd have to be a pretty good actor to, uh, to, con- to convince us that you're a boy lover. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> you must be, yeah, I'm yeah. a pretty good actor. I think I'm doing okay here. So. <laughs> Did you find, any information about overseas trips? Because that was your initial Yeah. Um, what, goal. what happened was on this particular, in, in this first meeting, I, I did no probing. I, I asked no questions. I just met some guys that I followed up with. Ironically, Peter approached me on the end of the first day of the meetings and wanted me to run for the steering committee, which is their governing body. And I used that later on when we went to trial, that had we been there to destroy the organization, I could have destroyed the organization because I would have been on the steering committee. I would have gotten the membership roles. We could have done that. But we weren't trying to violate these men's First Amendment rights. We were there to go after people that were violating the law. So I I said no. I you know I, I really didn't think I, it would be appropriate. I, I turned down the the uh, invitation, but I knew headquarters, which would have been up in arms had I come away from that meeting as a member of the of the steering committee. Now I come back. Uh, one of the guys that I met there was an ordained minister. He lived in California. Once I come back to Los Angeles, I maintain contact with him. Eventually, he gives me 125 images of child pornography and eight videotapes of men having sex with little boys. I get invited to the next meeting down in Miami. At the next meeting in Miami, the FBI decides we're going to be much more proactive. We had set it up so that we could have a a travel agency if we wanted. But I get to Miami. Uh, One of the first people I meet in Miami is someone who hadn't been at the New York meeting. He had introduces himself as a flight attendant, international flight attendant out of Chicago, and just on his own, without even any probing on my part, said that asked me if I'd ever traveled. He he uses his uh, free miles from American Airlines, where he was a flight attendant, to fly to Thailand and Mexico to have sex with little boys, and says, you know, there are lots of great places we could go. We should consider going to Costa Rica. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of getting all these facts a little bit discombobulated, but I know I'm not testifying under oath. I said, well, let me check, because I know that one of my friends went to a place in Mexico. So in essence, once we finished that weekend in Miami and we'd made contact with, with more of the members, I came back to the Los Angeles and we put in motion the undercover travel agency and we started contacting members, and I told I told David. Uh, it turned out that David, who was the international flight attendant, was also he didn't mention this at the meeting was a PhD psychologist that walked oh, really? worked at two Chicago area hospitals. 
So we set up this uh, set up the sting. I told I told David that uh, you know I I don't know about Costa Rica. I can look into it, but let me check about this Mexico deal. And I came back and said that uh, yes, there was a a B B and B a bed breakfast and boys down below Ensenada, and we um, we got eight members of the group's inner circle to agree to go on the trip to Ensenada. These men flew from all over the country to come to Los Angeles and San Diego in order to board a boat to uh, go down and have sex. So they traveled in interstate commerce to have sex with children. Now, from an, a, an FBI standpoint, from a prosecutorial standpoint, we had to get them to admit on tape that their primary purpose in the travel was to have sex. They had to say the age of preference and the sex acts that they wanted to commit with the boys. And I had to kind of coax this out of them in order to, that we could have a prosecutable case. And and are these recordings, consensual recordings of telephone conversations? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then we had, we had face, we had face to face meetings as well. It's been a while now, but I think everyone admitted that they wanted to have a, uh, 10 to 11 year old boy and they wanted, they all wanted anal sex. They wanted to perform on. Yeah. Yeah. They wanted to perform anal sex on the, on the children. And it, and again, that comes back to what I had said earlier in terms of trying to get them to discuss what they wanted without me being so graphic that the jury would be disgusted with with me in, in talking about it. So they would they were always trying to I was always trying to get them to tell me what sex acts they had committed and you know they were trying to get me to do it and I usually could flip it around on them because What would you say? To flip well, you, it to, for you not to have to answer that question, how would you do that? Yeah, well, usually it would be something like, oh, you know, I, 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 I love prepubescent boys. I just, body hair turns me off. But, but, well, but tell me about your first time. Well, what was it like in Thailand? You know, I would, I would say, yeah, I, I, I wanted it clear. Uh, it was one of my concerns when I first started meeting these guys. I didn't, I didn't want to have to somehow engage in in gay sex with these men so i just i would body hair turned me off i i wanted prepubescent boys and all this kind of stuff so i didn't have to worry about the the guys coming on to me and did that happen were were some of these guys attracted to boys and to you know heterosexual and great question the answer is it depends you couldn't put anybody in a box. I ended up corresponding with people that admitted that they liked adult women and little boys. I I corresponded with people that said they liked um, little boys and little girls. I had those that said they only liked boys. They had some that liked adult men and boys. They came in all different flavors. It wasn't just sort of a a one-box-fits-all type of situation. Of the people that we convicted, David, the the Ph.D. psychologist, was a an open homosexual. 
had never been married. Uh, one of the guys we convicted was a dentist out of Dallas that had been married with two children. Someone else, another guy had been married with, with a boy. Uh, some were openly gay. Some didn't believe they were gay. They only wanted to have sex with little boys. It, it was just an interesting phenomenon of, of dealing with all these people. And so I guess these were the men... These were the sex offenders who would groom our children as school teachers or our coaches, but instead of having to take that time to do that work, if they could just go overseas and pay for sex with children, you know, it's a lot easier. Well, yeah, and again, we had some that admitted that they only went overseas to have sex with little boys. We had others that admitted that they had had sex with, with boys here in the United States, and they were looking to go on the trip to have to have fun, uh, to have fun and to have sex. So it again, it just it just varied based upon the the needs. One of the guys we convicted was actually his third conviction. He was a former special ed school teacher, and he admitted to me that he had um, he had groomed about two hundred boys and molested sixty to seventy. What made this so interesting is, and I, I've said this to groups that I've talked to when I've, I've talked to law enforcement groups uh, or parental groups, that they thought I was one of them. I wasn't a court-ordered counselor. I wasn't their defense counsel. They thought I was one of them. And this particular former special ed teacher who ended up getting 31 years in, in our case, he said, Look, you just tell the court what they want to hear. You know, you can't heal us. You can't cure us. You just tell the courts and the counselors what they want to hear. He was, I guess you could say, the, the biggest feather in my cap. Because I'd written for the bulletin, when we first approached him, he lived in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and, and I, I contacted him after the meeting, actually at the Miami conference, and said that I'd really like to write an article for the bulletin about your experiences. And so he agreed to that, and I flew into Albuquerque to interview him for this magazine article I was going to write and then pitched him about going down to, to Mexico for the trip. And at the very end, it was just one of those perfect undercover meetings um, and one of those undercover moments. He He looks at me as we're just about ready to wrap up and he kind of gets, he balls up both his hands. and Because I, I said, is there anything that you really want to tell the membership that we want to get in this article? Is, is there something that you want to say? And he closes his eyes and he balls his hands. And he goes, there are just so many sting operations out there. I wasn't aware of this before, but but be careful. He's warning you. <laughs> yeah, it's like... You just got slammed again, my friend. Uh, let me ask you a question that I think a, a number of people will be asking themselves. And I, I think I know the answer, but I'm going to put it out there anywhere. anyway. Entrapment. The Bureau has arranged this trip. The Bureau has gotten the boat. The Bureau has invited these people. Tell us what safeguards you've put in place and making these arrangements so that later on somebody can't say that it was entrapment? Excellent question, because 
obviously that was something they were going to try to raise. In this particular case, it was David, the Ph.D. psychologist, who initially brought up the overseas travel. He's the one that brought up to me, without me prompting him, that he'd flown to Thailand and Mexico, and that he's the one that said we should all go to Costa Rica because we should be able to find boys there. He had talked about his trips to Thailand. He talked about going to Mexico and going down to the gay beaches in Mexico, and you could find boys that were operating in Mexico. He talked about the boys that he had had sex with both in Thailand and there. So he had already demonstrated a predisposition to commit the crime. Now with the others, it was the same way. In my conversations with them, I had to get them to admit to me that they were predisposed to do this. We weren't we weren't trying to take a person that wasn't planning or going to have ever have sex with a little boy and get them to commit a crime that they had no intention of ever committing. So by them admitting that they've done this in the past, we've essentially eliminated the predisposition. Uh, by them bringing up the idea of the travel first, we've, we've done this. By them saying specifically what they want to do with the child, we had um, avoided that entrapment issue as well. Wow. So you have eight people who have agreed to go on this trip, eight people who have actually traveled from destinations other than California into San Diego area to go on this trip. At what point do you pull out the handcuffs and say, gotcha? Again, <laughs> you ask good questions. You must be an FBI agent. You ask good questions. <laughs> uh, yeah, we we had two conflicts. One, we were d- dividing this case between Los Angeles and San Diego. And it worked out best. L.A. actually had the, tra- the undercover travel agency set up. And I was in the San Diego division at that time. So we, we decided that we would kind of divide it up uh, where we could give them the opportunity to board the boat in Los Angeles or to board it in San Diego. Now, the law states that you have to travel in interstate commerce with the intent to have sex. So our AUSA in San Diego said once they arrived in San Diego and we met with them, that was the only ele- that was that fulfilled the element and we had the violation. The Los Angeles AUSA said, no, they have to get on the boat. Uh, once they get on the boat, we have the violation. So now we have this conflict. We're bringing in pedophiles on a Friday night. And we're not going to arrest them till Saturday morning. The FBI knows who they are, knows where they are. We're bringing in pedophiles. And now what happens if they go out on a Friday night and end up raping some child? In my opinion, as a lawyer and reading the statute and the AUSA in San Diego's opinion, we already have the violation. Why aren't we arresting them? So that was... That was a, a tough issue, and we kind of acquiesced to, to Los Angeles and said, okay, we'll wait until Saturday morning to um, to arrest these people. What we ended up doing, at least in San Diego, we had we knew where they were staying. We were all staying at the same hotel, and we, we had agents that were 
making sure that they didn't leave that night. Fortunately, it was pouring down rain. It, the, the weather was horrible, so I don't think they were going to go out and, and do anything stupid. And uh, I kind of had assurances from everybody that they weren't going to do something stupid that night. And they were just all looking forward to the to the boat trip down to Ensenada. So I can't wait to hear how it happened and, and the look on their faces when they found out that you, you know, were an undercover agent. Yeah. It was, when we did it in, when we, when we did the arrest down in, in San Diego, I wasn't there for the Los Angeles arrest. We, uh, the guys got aboard the boat and they just, they arrested them there. So I'm, I'm not quite sure all the details of, of that particular arrest. In San Diego, we met early in the morning and um, had breakfast. It's pouring down rain. I was afraid they were going to back out because you can always back out and withdraw from the conspiracy. And I was afraid with the rain that they were going to say, oh, "Let's just let's put this off and let's go let's let's go next week or next month uh, when when the weather's better." And I suggested that morning. I said, "Look, you know." It's it's bad weather. If you guys want to, I'll just rent a car and we can we can cross the border. And all the three guys we arrested down in San Diego all said no. I, I wouldn't trust renting a car and taking it across the border. Let's just take the boat. I, I put all their equipment, everything into our car. And at one point, I turned to David, the the PhD psychologist, and I just said, uh, you know, it's it's not too late to back out. And and he says. I said, you know, we can withdraw from the conspiracy or something like. I, I said something, that, and and he goes, no, 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 you know, we'll, we're we're going to keep doing this, and and I, sort of that that last solid piece of evidence that we needed. So we get in the car, we drive over to the dock, we get out of the car. He is wearing lime green pants and a pink shirt. I mean, just stood out like a, a sore thumb. I've got this really bright colored shirt on because I wanted all the FBI agents to know who I was if something if something happened. And two two friends of mine that were on the SWAT team they were going to arrest me, and then we had others hiding in the bushes to arrest everyone else. Just as we were about to to board the to walk down the dock to board the boat, and I have to stop you for a minute to say that hiding in the bushes sounds so appropriate. But go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. And uh all of a sudden they uh they jump out and it's freeze FBI and these they got their guns drawn and everything and I I threw my crutch up in the air and I screamed <laughs> like a little girl and I start to faint. I you know, and I'm faking this and the the my buddy catches me before I fall in this puddle of mud. <laughs> And, and I didn't even see what the other guy, the, the other three targets of the investigation were doing, but uh, my guys, they had they had trouble. They were about to burst out laughing because I kind of have a reputation for doing the unusual. And uh, <laughs> and what was the purpose of you not letting them know at that moment who you were? Did you want to use that later on once you get yeah, them you back? Know, yeah, and I'm sure you've run into this too in in your cases, particularly with an undercover. It it works a couple different ways, and a lot of times I would get rested with the bad guys. Uh, sometimes I wouldn't, but it was to sort of play 
me off against the bad guys. So they think that I've been arrested. And now when the FBI agents go in to arrest, to interview the other three guys, they can always say, well, Bob's saying this or Bob's saying that. And it, it allows them, it, it, the bad guys are thinking, oh my gosh, you know, Bob is cooperating. So we better, uh, we better get on board. Uh, otherwise he's going to throw us to the wolves and, and, uh, one of us is going to take the fall. So we wanted them to think that, that I, that I was in custody as well. So that, um, to catch them in lies during the, during the interviews. So did this have to go to trial or were you able to get them all to? In San Diego, the, the psychologist, they tried to raise a, an entrapment, gross governmental defense, uh, motions. We beat those motions, and then once once we won in the motions, the pretrial motions, all three of the San Diego people pled guilty. In L.A., there were five up there. Four pled guilty, and Sam Lindblad, the the uh, Albuquerque special ed teacher, he went to trial, and so that was that was the only that was the only one of of any of the cases that went to trial. And I take it he was. Found guilty. Yeah, yeah. He he got. I, I think I misspoke. I think I said thirty-one years. He got thirty years. Yeah, he was sentenced and got and got thirty years. That's what happens when you decide to go to trial. So what yeah. did the uh, what did the other guys get? You know what? I, I'm embarrassed to say most of them got uh, right around three years for the, okay. the travel offense. One one guy um, had a prior conviction, and he got. Uh, 14 years, but the ones that it, no one else had a prior conviction, so they all got three years and had to register as sex offenders. And, but we ended up got uh, a PhD psychologist, a dentist, three former special ed teachers or special ed teachers, a a personal trainer, bodybuilder, and a blue collar worker, and an ordained minister. So. We ran that socioeconomic gamut, and as I found even in my correspondence with these guys, I, I dealt with Mensa members and I dealt with the illiterate. It was just hard to to sort of profile uh, these people to say, okay, these are the boxes, and if he's this, 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 and this, he's going to be uh, a boy lover. Hmm. All right, so I have three questions that I've kind of written down that I'd like to ask before we end the conversation. This was a great case. It was a great undercover assignment, but there are more than eight pedophiles, eight people out there who are stalking our children. Do we know if this type of investigation continues? Do do you have any idea if the Bureau... I know we do stuff online because I've actually had an interview, one of the other podcast interviews with Steve DeFazio, who worked for Innocent Images and, and did the online stuff. Um, but for the travelers, you know, trying to go overseas, do we know if that continues? Yeah, they continue to work those travel cases. Sometimes it's a kind of a one-on-one at the Innocent Images. You, you go online and posing as a, as a child and the, the people travel to have sex, so that's the violation of the law. Those cases are continuing. I think you've seen just in the last couple months, you know, a lot of these sex trafficking cases and, and human trafficking cases that are that have been taken down. So yeah, it's, 
different approaches, different investigative tools, but yeah, the, the FBI and law enforcement in general has not dropped the ball at all on this. It's, um, I guess I could be shameful and say, read the book, The Last Undercover, uh, but we talk in there about how difficult it was on this particular case. One, we were only going after the inner circle of the organization, but the PhD psychologist was preventing me from asking other people to come on the trip. And it was kind of one of those uh, difficult question is how do I, how do I invite people and not, and I was afraid that the, the psychologist was going to find out that I invited him and then he was going to pull out because there were people he didn't want to go on the trip with. So that, in that, just that particular investigation made it difficult. Yeah, you're right. I mean, when you say we only got eight, but we did get eight of the group's inner circle, and according to NAMBLA that filed an affidavit against me in court, they no longer meet publicly or privately. The the organization doesn't even have meetings anymore because they're they're so fearful of infiltration. Well, that definitely is a positive you know, point that you were able to make out of this. All right, so my second question is human human trafficking. You brought that up. Uh, you were talking about them traveling to go to Mexico or Thailand, and I think I've heard cases where they've gone to Russia, uh, you know, for this same type of activity. But you hear so much now about human trafficking and sex slaves and, and you know, young girls and young boys being uh, taken across uh, state lines, you know, for sexual slavery and, and exploitation. And so it sounds like, I don't know if that was happening before, but it sounds like it, we're also seeing the same type of activity here, where it's not just a sex offender, you know, trying to get the kid next door, the kid on his on his softball team, but actually paying for services. In the NAMLA investigation, we didn't run into the actual human trafficking. We just we ran into the the exploitation and the grooming of either the neighbor, neighbors' kids or going overseas. Uh, to be with children. Uh, there was one case in, in the Albuquerque uh, special ed teacher who talked about one of his friends was going to prison. He passed off his little boy, his victim, to Sam so that Sam now had this little boy that he could have sex with. <sighs> but All right. And then that the... Was the same, your reaction was the same reaction that the, uh, that the jury had. When uh, when he talked about that, and then my last question—I still have another comment—but my last question is: Did you feel any? I mean, how did you deal with this? I, I think about post-traumatic stress syndrome coming out of such a situation like this, and and I say that because you know I was on a squad uh, at one time um, that had you know, the child sexual images on the same squad. This was in the early days before they became their own separate squad. And, you know, the, the agent who sat next to me on, on occasion would need my help. And those images, even though it was 15, 20 years ago, are still in my head. You know, the pictures that I saw and the, the sexual abuse that was occurring in those images is still in my head. I, I, I'm just wondering how you dealt with that listening to these stories, seeing these men, and has it, has it stayed with you and, and, and how you deal with that? 
You know, I went into it. Um, I, I'm. I think I'm. I'm tethered to my religious beliefs and to my family. I don't feel that I've had any stress as a result of that particular case. Uh, for me, I was working three different undercover cases at the same time. So when the Nambla case was over, I really didn't have time to to sit down and process it. I was moving on to this other case that involved international weapons and the and the North Korean super note. So I I didn't have time to sort of process through all that was that was going on. Um, so it no it didn't bother me the the stresses that I have now. I mean I I have dreams but it's more it's more with running gun battles than it is with the images and and what I saw with this. I I I believe that we did a great job on this case. Of oh, you did a these. fabulous job. A fabulous job. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to, when I said eight people, I don't want to minimize, you know, the significance of taking eight people and shining a light on, on, on their, you know, warped and disgusting uh, behavior. I couldn't do it. You know, I've, I've said that in, in prior discussions on, on this podcast about these type of ca- cases. I, no, I could not do that type of work. So I'm, I'm clapping. I'm applauding to oh. you and, and thanking you for, you know, for your service, for your, for your ability to, to take on a tough assignment like that. Well, I, I appreciate that, uh, very much. I, I do believe that I would not have been successful in this case had I not had all the prior undercover cases of experience. I couldn't have, I couldn't have successfully done this as my first undercover case. Um, so it 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 took those other experiences and to really appreciate what I needed to do in order to get the conviction and get, and to elicit the admissions and all that. And I I don't think I I don't think we would have been successful had this been my first time out of the shoot. When did you retire? Oh, a long time ago. I, I retired <laughs> in in uh, 2006. So okay, yeah, that was two years before I retired in 2008. So I know what you've been doing now, and I'm so excited about it because I can look up to you and, and think, one day, one day I'll be just like him. So tell us, <laughs> so tell us, you talked about your, your first book, The Last Undercover, True Story, An Agent's Dangerous Dance with Evil, but you've written other books. Yeah, the first book was The Last Undercover, and that details the NAMLA investigation and a dozen other cases in which I was the undercover agent. And then I've I've written two novels uh, about, oh, gee, go figure, an undercover FBI agent who's better looking and has more hair and is younger than I am. <laughs> and, uh, and then I was able, I connected with Oliver North. Uh, so the, I... The Oliver North? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so I've co-written... His last two books, American Heroes on the Home Front and Counterfeit Lies. One of the greatest things for me for the books is that when the books first came out, I, I was a Marine and my son was active duty eight years in the Marine Corps. I used to go down to Balboa Hospital in San Diego and visit with the wounded guys and would go in and, uh, hey, I'm Bob Hamer. I can't sing or dance, but I wrote a book. I'm former Marine, retired FBI agent, and I would give him a book. And sometimes I'd stay in there for two minutes and sometimes for two or three hours. And my wife and I developed a great relationship with these these young Marines and their families. And we'd had them over for numerous meals. We'd watch their kids on weekends when they'd go 
away on marriage retreats and uh, dealing with double and triple amputees, and we've had some that have died since we uh, since we started working with them. But uh, Oliver North needed help on a book uh, in his American Heroes series. So American Heroes on the Home Front discusses uh, many of the Marines that I dealt with in my work down at Balboa. So that's that's a, a great book with 250 pictures of these guys. And then The Counterfeit Lies is uh, kind of a novel that we've uh, took the um, the Operation Smoking Dragon, the, the weapons case and the North Korean Supernote case, and made that into a novel. And, and I've, um, I, I've had a couple lucky breaks. I wrote a script for a TV show. And, uh, and so I've, yeah, I've, I've just essentially been busy writing. Well, I'm always excited to, to speak to other retired agents who, you know, are writing because it's just something that I love to do. I keep getting sidetracked with the success of the podcast. I, I spend uh, probably more time with this than I do with the writing, but it is something that, uh, you know, I, I love to do. So I'm going to add two of your books to my FBI reading resource list. Um, I keep a list of all of the agents that I've spoken to on the podcast and, you know, some of their books so that people can have a chance to read books about the FBI written by FBI agents because that's so cool. Well, thank you. I appreciate that very much, Jerry. And thanks for your work. I, I know your podcast has been successful, and that's, uh, that, that's a, a mission in and of itself. Well, thank you. All right, so... Um, I'd like to give you a chance to kind of sum up. You can either, you know, sum up this case or sum up your career, but you get the last word. So what would you like to say? It, it was a great career. And if you are interested in law enforcement, I, I hope you'll look at the FBI. It's a terrific bunch of men and women that uh, have taken the oath seriously to protect and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And I, I think that's what I did. I never had a day where I look back and, and thought, why did I take this job? I, it wasn't a job. It was, uh, it was, it was truly a vocation. And I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to have been an FBI agent for, for 26 years. And that's the end of the interview. As always, back at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find photos of Bob. There are links to an article about this case and the NABLA members who were caught in the tourist sex ring. There's also a recent FBI article titled The Scourge of Child Pornography. And there are links to two of Bob's books, The Last Undercover, The True Story, and FBI Agent's Dangerous Dance with Evil, which tells you all about his undercover assignments, in particular, his infiltration of NABLA. That's nonfiction. I've also included a link to his FBI thriller, Enemies Among Us. This book is about what else but an undercover FBI agent who has a new assignment tracking terrorist cell groups. I've already added both of Bob's books to my FBI reading resource, FBI books written by FBI agents, which you get access to when you sign up for my monthly newsletter. You can pick up both of those books on Amazon. And while you're checking them out, don't forget to check out my crime novel, 
pay-to-play about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.